but amen. Our scripture reading today is found in Luke 23, chapter 23, verses 33 and 34. It's found on page 748 in the Pew Bibles, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This is the word of the Lord. The words he saved for last. For some time, I have wanted to do a series during the time of Lent, which started last Wednesday, as you know, with Ash Wednesday. But I've always wanted to do a series based on the final words of Jesus that can lead us all the way through this season, where we consider what it means to live a life of sacrifice as we lead up to that point of when Jesus himself sacrificed his very life for us. And so we're going to journey through each of the phrases that he shared on the cross. They were his final words. And his final words had to be important to him and therefore they are important to you and to me. I have been in places where I have sat with people who are dying because of terminal illness, disease, whatever it might be. And and if I have not heard the very final words of some, as I have, I've heard some of the words that were close to the end. And sometimes they are words as simple as, could you move my pillow a bit, please? Or could you feed me a little more ice? And, And some toward the very end have shared words with me that I vowed based on the intimacy and the sacredness of the moment that I would never repeat them because of how amazingly reverent a moment it was. It was an amazingly reverent moment here with Jesus hanging on the cross. And, and, and I can tell you from experience, I know that people who are trying to labor out, sometimes whisper out their final words, it can sometimes take a great deal of exertion. But consider the effort it must have taken on a cross. Because what you would literally have to do as you are hoisted onto a cross, which is, think, think about hitting some water, jumping into some ice cold water, and it takes your breath away, and you're stretched out in a way where you cannot exhale. And what you have to do literally is, is press your feet against the vertical part of that cross and then somehow wrench yourself up by the nails that are in your wrists simply so you can exhale, let alone utter some words. But it was important enough for Jesus to utter some words from the cross that he knew would have meaning, perhaps not even at the moment for anyone out there in the crowd, but would have eternal meaning for you and for me. His words each time were sparse, but each time they were sparse but profound. 
and they speak to you and me. And we come this morning to the first known statement. And isn't it interesting, the first statement he makes is a prayer. He speaks very personally, very intimately to his Abba, his, his father. And I want to begin by noticing what he does not say. He does not say, Father, forgive me. <laughs> that would not have made sense. This is the one who was in every way perfect and human, perfectly human, yet without sin. He did not allow his humanness to be corrupted by sin. He was pure. He was innocent. He was holy. There was absolutely no reason for him to say, forgive me. Nor did he say, Father, deliver me. Rescue me. Would that God the Father have chosen to, had Jesus uttered those words, reached down as he did in the Old Testament narratives where Enoch and Elijah were taken straight up into heaven, did not have to go through suffering, let alone death itself. And if anybody was justified in saying, deliver me, it was indeed Jesus, the very Son of God. But that's not what he said. And I think most significantly... What he did not say was, Father, avenge me. Avenge me in the face of these who have treated me thus. Think about it. He's looking out upon people whom he created. For whom he gave the gift of life. And yet they are snuffing out his own amidst jeers and taunts and ridicule. And for some, a a sickening sense of mirth over this crucifixion. Jesus had every right to say, avenge me, Father. Think of the enormity of this crime. Avenge me, Father. But he does not say that either. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Who is them? What is the breadth of of the them. Does it include the soldiers who were casting lots at his feet? Sure. Does it include Caiaphas and Annas and other members of the Sanhedrin who conspired to trump up false accusations against him? Sure. Did it include Judas Iscariot who betrayed him? Sure. Simon Peter who denied him? Sure. This jeering mob in his face, did it include even them? Yes. But it includes you and me as well. You knew where I was going with that, and it includes you and me as well. You remember the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we can say no, historical chronology has kept us from that. But you know what? In a profound spiritual way, you were there that day. You were desperately in need of forgiveness as well. All of us were there in a state of, if I can say, dishonor against God. We were there. We're included with the them. And I want you to notice one thing that's very likely. As he's laboring out this first of many words as he is suffering, I just cannot imagine from a human standpoint how he was able to labor out so many words. But you might not even know this. It's very likely that Jesus said these first words more than once. Do you know that? It says, and he 
said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And he said, the word said there is in the imperfect, which connotes repeated action. Repeated action. Which is why the New American Standard Version, which is so big on trying to get back as closely as it can to the original Greek, says, and Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. How many times did he say it? I, I, I wonder, I marvel at that. How many times did he say it? And did he say it as he was carrying the, the patibulum, the, 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 the horizontal part of the cross, and as they were lying him there on the ground, did he say, Father, forgive them? At that point, when they were stretching out his arms, did he say it? When he, they were driving the nails through his wrists and through his feet, was he saying it then? Did he repeat it again? When they were hoisting him up for full crucifixion, did he say it then? He said it likely more than once. Can't help but think of you and me. Sometimes do we need to say it more than once? I mean, it's amazing to me that he continues to say it more than once to you and me whenever we ask forgiveness. That's a gift in and of itself. How often do we need to forgive someone else more than once? We've said this before when Jesus told the disciples, no, 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 you don't forgive just seven times, you forgive 70 times seven. At least part of what Jesus was telling them was, you know what, sometimes you're going to have to say it again and again and again, because there are some people in your life who have hurt you, wounded you so deeply, betrayed you so badly, disappointed you in such a profound way, that you're going to have to wrestle out, labor out your forgiveness more than once, and it's a process. But you know what? I think that's the least you and I can do given words that he probably said more than once as he hangs there in such an agonizing fashion and when the worst of crimes ever was being carried out. More than once he says it. And he goes on to say what? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. How many of y'all grew up memorizing from the King James? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Now, let's, let's unpack that for just a second. Is he saying the people are ignorant of their wrongdoing? No, he's not saying that. Did Peter know that he denied Jesus? Yes. Was Judas aware of the fact that he betrayed Jesus? Yes. Did the members of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas and Annas and others, did they know that they had conspired to trump up false charges? Sure. Did the Roman soldiers know what they were doing? Absolutely. Did the crowd know what they were doing? Yes. Did they might even sense that there was some element of guilt here, but nevertheless, maybe in a pragmatic sense, this is just what needs to happen. And some of them probably in a sickening way were simply enjoying the show. They were not ignorant of the facts of their guilt. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What is it that they don't know? They don't know what they're doing. They don't recognize the enormity of this. It's not that they're ignorant of the fact of what they're doing. It's the gravity of it. Because what they are literally doing is tormenting and murdering the very Son of God. Had they literally grasped that, had they really known that, Their response, no doubt, would have been different, but that is what they don't realize. Paul makes that clear later on in 1 Corinthians 2.8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
If they had known then what is now clear, they would have realized this is the Lord of glory. This is the Messiah. They did not realize that their crime was greater than they ever could have imagined, the creator of all things. His very son is being tortured and put to death by you. You know, we, we did that reading earlier uh, from, from a Catholic order, you know, that, that responsive reading, and it says even there, if people knew then, who didn't know then, if they knew now the way things were, people would be astounded by the influence Christ has in the crosses all over the place. It makes me think it, it would be fascinating to have taken someone who was in that taunting crowd and put them in a time capsule and bring them to the present, and they could travel the planet and realize very quickly and later on overwhelmingly that the greatest symbol of all time, the greatest symbol of hope of all time, is a cross. That very instrument on which this man was dying This man on whom they were hurling all these insults and epithets. Think about that. They could not have imagined the enormity of the crime. Didn't realize the gravity of what they were doing. Well, do we? (laughs) When you and I try to take God's place, when we subject him to further suffering, further crucifixion, further dishonor, further humiliation based on how we are living or thinking or behaving? Do we realize the enormity of that crime? But yet there's such power in it. I mean, here they are crucifying him. And yet he forgives. Even so, he forgives. Now I want you to turn that and and, and focus on someone whom you have struggled to forgive. Because he really becomes the model for you and me as to what it takes to forgive someone, especially that person in your mind who emerges immediately who is the hardest person for you to forgive because of something in the past, something they said, something they did or didn't do, some way they failed you, some way they wounded you in a severe way. And yet he becomes our model because we forgive not knowing what the outcome is going to to be. Let, Let me go back to this passage from the Sermon on the Mount because I think sometimes we misunderstand this and we understand that there should be kind of a tit-for-tat kind of thing here some kind of mathematical formula but that's not the case because sometimes when we try to forgive people there's not always the nice clean resolution that we want what does Jesus say earlier on we prayed the Lord's Prayer immediately following the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says this for if you forgive others when they sin against you your heavenly Father will also forgive you But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, wait a minute. Does this mean that God will not forgive us if we don't forgive others? Sounds like a a transactional kind of thing. No, that's not what it's saying. Keep in mind, God has already forgiven us. The question is whether or not you and I will accept it in an authentic way. To really accept it as a broken sinner... You know, in some way, shape, or form, we need to have gotten to a point, whether it's being uh, uh, led through a sinner's prayer. It could be that way. It might not be that way. Maybe you, in some way, along your journey, got to a point of realizing the gravity of your brokenness before God, because that's the kind of sacrifice that's pleasing to God as a broken spirit, David said. 
you got to a point of brokenness because you're really not going to be able to forgive other people around you until you realize the gravity of your brokenness before the Christ whom you had a hand in helping sin against and dishonor. And when you get to that point, your heart enlarges, uh, uh, your grace enlarges. And you have a larger heart of grace that you can extend to others. You know, people have said you don't really know grace until you've experienced it. Yeah, in the same way, you don't really know forgiveness until you've experienced it. And you cannot really authentically convey forgiveness until you have experienced that first for yourself. And, And your heart of grace enlarges. And yes, that's what you want to do is forgive even the most difficult person for you to forgive. Not even knowing what the outcome will be. Uh, my good friend Randall O'Brien is, is currently president of um, Carson Newman College, also a wonderful minister, preacher. And he was guest preaching in a church one Sunday morning, and he said about three rows back there was a guy that was just riveted to what I was saying. And he said, I was preaching on the subject of forgiveness. He said, and this guy, he said, was just like a sponge in his eyes. It was almost like he didn't blink, and he was listening the whole time. He said, but toward the close of the sermon, he kind of started to gain a little smirk on his face. He said, it kind of bothered me, but I kept going. He said, and, but sure enough, after the service, when I was in the back and, and, you know, people were shaking my hand as they left, he came up and literally grabbed me by the lapels and said, well, you're just like all those other preachers. You're just like all the others. He said, answering questions that we're not asking. He said, you asked the wrong question, or you answered the wrong question, I should say. And Randall said, well, what, what's your question? He said, I have this man, this person, we used to be friends, and he let me down in a profound way. And I'm supposed to forgive him? But here's my question for you. He said, and you didn't answer this. He said, do I have to forgive him if he doesn't repent? Do I have to forgive him if he doesn't repent? And Randall said, thanks be to God, the Spirit was working in and through him at that moment because only God could have delivered this word. But he said, sir, you don't understand. That's not the right question. Your question should not be, do I have to forgive him if he doesn't repent? Your question should be, can he repent if I don't forgive? And the man said, what do you mean by that? And Randall said, the cross. Think about Jesus on the cross. Did anybody repent that day? Even after he forgave, did anybody repent? Possibly the centurion, when he said, surely this man was a son of God, but that was after he died. As he was suffering there on the cross, in front of the mob, in front of the soldiers, in front of religious leaders, did anybody repent? No, but you know what? He forgave anyway. And that's one of the hardest things, isn't it, in, in, in being Christ followers is we want to, to, you know, we want to do the forgiveness and it winds up, you know, in, in some idealistic group hug or kumbaya experience. It's not always going to be that way. Nevertheless, we are called to forgive and that's it. We are called to forgive as unconditionally as Christ unconditionally forgave us. And the key is for you and me to be broken by the wideness of that mercy to be broken by the enormity of his grace in the face of the enormity of my crime toward him. Can you and I get to that point? He said, Father, forgive them long before anyone repented. And it's kind of mind-bending if you think about it. Think about this. You know, he forgave you long before you came on the scene. It's kind of amazing. What did John say? And maybe some of you can help me fill this in. We love because he, does anybody know? We love because he what? First 
loved us. Paul said what? For God shows his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Already did. We love because he first loved us. Can you bring yourself to that point of open-ended, unconditional, boundless forgiveness even toward that one who is the most difficult one for you to forgive. And yes, like I said earlier, it might be a process, 70 times 7. You might need to do it more than once. I'm going to introduce you to a woman who must have had to have uttered, I forgive you more than once because of a situation. She found herself in a tragic situation. Now, I was watching CBS News one night and uh, was really touched by this woman and her example, and I just want you to watch it. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, Thank a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20, and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, yes, CBS News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me.
Forgiveness is a powerful thing. As the band comes up to lead us uh, in some singing, I I want us to consider two things. Again, our having been forgiven by Christ who died for us and our capacity to forgive those who are difficult for us to forgive. What a powerful image where you have her standing at her doorway and the young man who killed her son right next door. Who is that person who would be your person standing right next door, who would be the hardest person for you to give? And yet you can shift that image to you standing there and Christ standing at the doorway and his inviting you in in spite of your ways and waywardness. I want us just to consider those things about what it means to be forgiven and to be forgivers as we stand to sing together. Come, he 